Hello, and welcome to The Aura, a podcast that takes you inside and outside the work of art in discussion with those who create, curate, write, think about, and enjoy contemporary art. My name is Cheryl Sim, and I am curator and managing director of the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art in Montreal. Gunnar B. Kavarin is a curator, art historian, and served as the director of the Astrup Fernley Musite in Oslo for 19 years, having recently stepped down in May of 2020. Over the years, Gunnar has built an impressive international network of artists, curators, writers, critics, and art professionals. He was co-curator of the 2nd Moscow Biennial and the 58th October Salon, as well as curator of the 12th Lyon Biennial. We first met when the Foundation presented the group exhibition Imagine Brazil in 2015, co-curated by Thierry Raspel and Hans-Ulrich Obrist. It was during a site visit for that show when Gunnar explained that he had been curating exhibitions for Yoko Ono for almost 30 years. Thanks to him and his generosity, the Foundation was able to produce and present Growing Freedom, the Instructions of Yoko Ono, and the art of John and Yoko in the spring of 2019. I don't mind saying that since we met, Gunnar has become a mentor to me, which is a role that he occupies for many artists and curators around the world. He is an art world expert of the highest caliber, and yet he is incredibly kind and wonderfully approachable. This is a conversation we had about Yoko Ono and her instruction works. So Gunnar, it is an incredible pleasure for me to have you back in Montreal. Thank you so much for joining us and for uh, agreeing to work with me on uh, a dream, which is a Yoko Ono exhibition at the Foundation. We met originally around an exhibition called Imagine Brazil that we presented a few years ago. And we were having dinner. It was the time that you came to see the foundation in order to see, you know, how we might set up this show, which was touring in many other locations before coming to Montreal. And you were telling me about having just been in New York before coming to Montreal to visit your friend Yoko Ono. And you sort of told me that you'd been working with her on many exhibitions and you didn't know this, but she is one of my great heroes in art and in life, a real role model for me and, and many other women of Asian heritage who didn't have a lot of Asian women in public life that they could model themselves after or to see that there are other women like them doing incredible things. Mm. And so when you said that, I was sort of like, take it easy, you know, like just stay calm. <laughs> but we went ahead and we did our Imagine Brazil exhibition, which I thought was a, a wonderful thing. And now um, we have Yoko. And it was a couple of years ago when I asked, uh, I sort of wanted to wait and see how things would go. And I knew you had many shows in South America for her. And when I asked you, would you like to curate an exhibition of instruction works at the Foundation in Montreal? And you said, only on one condition. And the condition was you co-curate and that we talk about, you know, the Montreal Bedin Project. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for that generosity. So my first question is, what brought you to her work 
back in in the 80s what drew you to it well uh, in fact it uh, came through my work with uh, the fluxus movement i come from iceland uh, i was born and raised in in reykjavik and uh, there was quite a presence a strong presence of uh, conceptual and fluxus related artists in reykjavik in the 60s and in the 70s and uh, in the 80s uh, i was uh, director of the reykjavik art museum and i uh, wanted it to introduce uh, fluxus artworks into the collection and uh, i wanted to initiate also some exhibitions that would maybe uh, bring together the uh, Icelandic uh, fluxus-related artist and the international fluxus art scene. And then um, it was in the end of the 80s, I was in an opening in, uh, in Venice, during the Venice Biennale, and uh, then I was introduced to uh, Yoko Ono by one of my uh, colleagues from Norway at the time, whose name was Per Hovdenak, who was the director of the Henny Onstad uh, Art Center in Oslo at the time. And uh, he uh, already uh, knew John Hendricks, the assistant of Yoko Ono, and uh, he uh, also uh, knew Yoko from before. So he introduced me to Yoko Ono in this uh, opening party, and uh, Yoko and I, we had a long conversation. And in the end I, uh, of our conversation before leaving the party, I uh, asked if she would like to uh, come to Iceland, to Reykjavik, and to uh, have an exhibition at our museum. And uh, she was a little bit surprised, and uh, she asked me why, why uh, she should come to Iceland. And, uh, well, I did not really know how to react to these <laughs> questions, and I just spontaneously said, first of all, that the Iceland was the the center of the world it was in the center of the world and that was quite an abstraction and then uh, i added it that each icelandic person was a poet and uh, that was something that she uh, reacted to in a very positive way and uh, so she accepted to come and meet the poets in iceland and to uh, uh, an exhibition and uh, it became in fact an important uh, huge uh, retrospective exhibition that toured uh, the, the Scandinavian countries uh, in the beginning of the 90s. You've uh, organized so many exhibitions with her. Recently a grouping of exhibitions in South America that are centered on the instruction works. How many exhibitions have you organized with Yoko Ono now? Oh it's difficult to say but when it all comes together it's about 10 yeah 12 15 exhibitions but uh, my main interests in these last 10 uh, 15 years have been the instructions so most of these exhibitions have turned around the notion of uh, the instructions uh, these kind of uh, text-based uh, works that uh, are also uh, works of, uh, most of the time, works of uh, participation. This was, for me, a very interesting and intriguing uh, questions, and which I think places Yogono in the center of the contemporary art. Mm-hmm. I mean, she certainly is a pioneer, you know, this is real visionary, and I thought it might be interesting for us to to unpack the instructions, because it seems to be this through line, this one thing that traverses her 
entire body of work. Certainly she also does discrete objects, but I think there's still, or maybe you can, through our unpacking of it, we can see how even the other discrete works that she makes are still very much informed by an approach rooted in, in the instructions. So perhaps a way to start is, I mean, you've written that she is one of the first artists to question the very nature of the work of art, and that her instructions works really flew in the face of the strict and narrow definitions of art as it had been understood at that time. So we're talking, you know, sort of this high modernism idea of these rarefied objects that are only to be displayed in places called art museums and part of a very powerful market to be considered timeless. (laughs) And so she thwarted those conventions And even if the works had some materiality, the materiality was very mundane. It was like everyday objects. So what have you come to uh, after all these years of working with the instructors? How did she come to that? How would this approach be informed, perhaps, by early education? What would you say? It is a long story, in fact. And I think it's uh, important to look at her... uh, education and look at where she comes from. And uh, I think it's good to remember that uh, she uh, is born in Tokyo in 1933. She is uh, a part of a very uh, upper-class family. Uh, Her mother is uh, Yasuta, uh, comes from the Yasuta family, which was the second most uh, richest and powerful family in Japan at the time. And uh, Yoko Ono, she received a very uh, good education, as you can imagine. And the mother was uh, very uh, present and ambitious uh, on her behalf. And uh, so when she was attending uh, school, there were, in the beginning, uh, classes for boys and classes for girls. And then... uh, uh, the story tells that, in fact, the family of uh, Yoko Ono had the Japanese government to uh, make some changes and to uh, make mixed classes. So Yoko Ono was one of the first who uh, was uh, introduced to these uh, mixed classes uh, of uh, the elite uh, school in the uh, 30s, the Gakushun uh, elite school, which uh, had very experimental educational uh, programs. And uh, Yoko Ono, she followed, uh, uh, of course, different kinds of uh, normal practical uh, education, but she had also, quite early in her uh, youth, a very open and experimental artistic education. From what I've read, um, this avant-garde sort of elementary school that she went to had that students were encouraged to appreciate everyday sounds as much as they would appreciate musical instruments. So I would imagine like the sound of the falling rain would be considered music and they were being actively taught this, you know, at like ages six and seven, that this is also music. That's in the 30s. It blows my mind. 
that there was such an advancement of a way of breaking out of conventional thought, especially for someone like me who's born and raised in the West, and it's all very categorized. And it took a lot of pioneers like Yoko Ono and her training for us to be exposed to these other ways of thinking. So, I mean, it seems like it was really germane to her way of coming into instructions for her to have this kind of training. So there was an you know, real openness to artistic expression. Yeah, well, her father was uh, a musician. Right. And he was a piano player. And uh, very early, uh, Yoko uh, would uh, have piano lessons and singing lessons. So already in the in the 30s, he is uh, introduced to uh, a new kind of experimental teaching and then right. also to very classical uh, uh, musical education being uh, uh, singing lessons and uh, and piano lessons. I think that uh, this is very important to have in mind because then comes the war, which is, of course, a very dramatic period for, for Yoko Ono and her family. It is, uh, of course, a disaster for the Japanese uh, society and the nation in general. And after the war, there is a new kind of uh, situation in the cultural life in Japan. And then uh, Yoko Ono becomes a part of a new kind of context. And this new kind of context is, in fact, uh, a group of artists that come from different horizons. They are architects, they are poets, they are musicians, and they are uh, painters, they are uh, performance artist, and uh, they are, of course, uh, very much aware of this kind of uh, new domination of the American uh, politics and cultural uh, activities. But they are also very much uh, irritated and frustrated about the, the Japanese uh, heritage and the Japanese story uh, mm -hmm. during the Second World War, how this... Uh, classical, traditional politicians, they mm -hmm. brought the, the nation into this kind of terrible impasse. So the group of artists at the time are in a certain kind of uh, no man's land. They right. are trying to reinvent or, mm -hmm. or, or invent something new which can detach them from this uh, American imperialism that is... Uh, invading the Japanese society and also to get a certain kind of distance towards the Japanese society. But at the same time, there is a big contradiction in these attitudes because um, now we know that, uh, of course, the artistic scene uh, in Japan in the 50s were quite, in fact, close to the American art scene and to the European art scene. They were quite close to uh, this kind of notion of uh, freedom of the abstract expressionism that was, uh, in fact, an important part of the American propaganda at the time. And they of also, of course, were uh, rooted into a certain uh, very clear Japanese tradition. So, at the time, there is a very complex mm -hmm. uh, situation uh, taking place, and uh, these artists, uh, they even make it even more complex by mixing up all these different uh, 
artistic possibilities that they had at the time. Architecture became performance, uh, paintings became uh, events, uh, sculptures became architecture, literature became uh, paintings, and music became instruction uh, mm-hmm. works. So it is clear that Yoko Ono, from the beginning, is not a visual artist. And her education is, first of all, a music education and philosophy and literature, poetry and composition. Right. That These are the, the basic education that she receives, uh, first uh, in Japan, but then also in New York. So if we try to look at the instructions uh, more in depth, it is also important to remember that uh, in the she experiments with uh, the notion of of instructions already in 1955. She makes uh, a work of art, uh, the lighting piece, where she uh, instructs people to light a match and to look at it while it burns up. It is a work that she makes in 1955 and it is rather isolated in her career and it is not until uh, uh, 1961 that we see a number of these uh, instructions being shown uh, in the AG Gallery in New York. And it is, in fact, interesting to, to look at this first work of instruction and to uh, try to see uh, and try to imagine what was her intention and what was the result of that kind of uh, experiment. I think now that uh, this work in the beginning has very much to do with uh, her musical experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is difficult to say if it was a musical piece right. by uh, touching the the, the, the... the match to the, yeah, to the striking surface. Yes. Whether that, you know, it's just sound, it's kind of organized in a way. Yes. It's rhythmic. Yeah. Or it was a, a visual uh, right. experience by making the, the, the light come. Mm-hmm. But it is, in the beginning, it is a text-based right. work. So uh, it connects to the, to the musical scores, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but it also uh, connects to uh, some kind of poetry. Right. There are scholars who have been uh, pointing out the, some kind of uh, distant uh, connection between the haiku uh, poetry, the, the tanga poetry of 16th century Japanese uh, literature to her own uh, mm-hmm. uh, instruction uh, poetry. Eh? Yeah. And uh, I think that uh, in the beginning, like in all kinds of experiments, I think it must have been uh, uh, unclear, even for the artist herself, right. the, uh, what was happening when she uh, created that kind of, uh, of moment. Uh, I think we do have this sort of misconception that artists have it all figured out, and then it happens, and it's brilliant. But in fact, yeah, there would be a slow process of, there's an idea, and it's just about getting it out there and, and realizing it, even if you're not sure what it all means yet. And then there's some mystery still, and yet there's an evolution which seems to begin in a more prolific way in the early 60s. But I would like to maybe back up just a little bit because 
Um, there's the question, too, of her traveling with her family as a child to the United States and living in San Francisco and New York and learning to speak English and speaking English at an early age and being immersed in American society and culture and moving back and forth between Tokyo and these cities and the perception of others and of herself being formed by that moving fluidly between American culture and Japanese culture. Mm. Um, this creating a really interesting duality where she's struggling with being perceived as too American by her Japanese peers and then also whilst in America being, of course, you know, very Japanese. But this all seems to have been very informative for the kind of subject matter that she wants to deal with in her work, and then also which allows her the opportunity when she goes back to New York in the early 60s um, to be amongst uh, some very influential and important avant-garde American artists. So maybe we can sort of pick that back up to we have the 1955 anomaly of lighting piece, She's back in New York uh, on her own in 60, 61, and starting to really create a body of work. Perhaps we could start with these instructions for paintings, because that was this bridge that she's taking up. You know, you were, you were speaking of like the blurring of artistic disciplines happening in Japan that mm. she was very much exposed to. And so now we have this artist who is very much formed in music, philosophy, and poetry, and then who wants to make this move to a new type of visual art. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, quite clear that she takes a decision at a certain moment that she wants to be a part of the visual arts. Yeah. She wants to create visual art. And uh, I think it's also interesting to add one notion to this development, which is, of course, the Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is, of course, uh, she comes from a, a profoundly Buddhist uh, culture and society. And Buddhism was, of course, a very important uh, part of her, uh, her, uh, of her uh, education and her environment. And, of course, in the Buddhism, we have this kind of sense and, and, and a way of divorcing the material from the spirit. And uh, mm -hmm. in her work, we can see that uh, her greatest originality is maybe that uh, she goes all the way and uh, expresses the work of art as an idea, mm -hmm. separated for any kind of object. And... Uh, we have, of course, uh, many uh, artists before who were uh, dealing with uh, or questioning the concept behind uh, the work of art, but uh, it was very rare that uh, artists would abandon totally the object. And uh, it seems that uh, uh, Yoko Ono, with her uh, relationship to music, with her relation to the Buddhism, with her relationship to the poetry at the time, was able to liberate this kind of traditional notion of art related to the object. And in this way, she would be able to uh, come with a proposition, but the proposition had to have a certain kind of link to 
the visual arts. And that she creates by naming the works smoke painting, painting for the wind, painting to hammer a nail, and so on. So by naming these works paintings, she puts them into a certain kind of context. And it is this kind of decision that really emphasizes the fact that she has become a visual artist. So the painting instructions began really as text-based instructions alone. And um, she she seems to evolve it in a playful way whereby, okay, we have the idea based on the text, but you can also realize it. It's interesting because the, the situation that we can now imagine from uh, documentation concerning the exhibition in 1961, the situation was such that she presented the instructions, but she also realized some of the instructions that people could uh, react to or even uh, develop uh, further. Right. So uh, it would be a smoke painting, it would be a painting that could be stepped Stepped on. on, um, But at the same time, uh, she had the instructions... And she had some calligraphies exhibited. So having these kind of constellation of works, you can say, you can imagine that there were some doubts Mm -hmm. or there were some tentatives going on. And it was not really preconceived and it was not clear where... She was uh, it wasn't fully, going. fully mapped out yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she was still trying and, and experimenting, and but making a, taking a risk to get them out there. And the exhibition that we're talking about at AG Gallery, that's George MacUnis's gallery, who was sort of the orchestrator of, of Fluxus or would become the orchestrator of Fluxus. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a really amazing meeting. I mean, it's it, it seems you know, like a kind of amazing... Uh, opportunity for them both to develop some of these, you know, these ideas. Absolutely, and she has uh, in this uh, exhibition, she uh, in fact meets the New York art scene, the mm-hmm. the, uh, the mm-hmm. avant-garde art scene. There are artists, uh, Marcel Duchamp is there, and there are uh, other fluxus-related artists. There are other. Uh, performing artist, and uh, it seems that it was the uh, instructions that get the most important uh, reactions. I think that uh, the result of this exhibition in New York was that she decided to show only the instructions a year later in uh, uh, Soketsu Art Art Center in in Tokyo. Mm Uh, where she opened an exhibition on the 24th of May in 1962. And then she showed only the instructions, text-based instructions in Japanese, written by her uh, husband, uh, Toshi uh, Ishiyanagi, who was already a a very uh, established and uh, avant-garde composer uh, at the time. And that exhibition seems to... uh, be the event that, uh, in fact, uh, established her work as an instruction uh, conceptual artist. So it's had its sort of debut in New York, and then she she developed it and presented it again in Tokyo, which seemed to kind of galvanize this approach 
and and to be associated with her uh, directly. It it gave it a a, a certain kind of form, mm-hmm. and uh, it formalized it in this kind of text-based expression. And uh, a few years later, she would gather this uh, text right. into a small book mm-hmm. called Grapefruit, right. which is, of course, a certain kind of uh, archive bible for the the instructions of Yokono. So Grapefruit first came out in, I think, just 500 copies, self-published. She had also shown some of these to Macunas as well back in New York. There's a link to grapefruit, this, the fruit itself, like why grapefruit? And uh, I love this story. She had done some of her schooling at the Sarah Lawrence College in New York, and uh, she was writing. She was writing short stories for, for the sort of the school publication, and one of them was called A Grapefruit in a World of Park, and uh, later just the word grapefruit. But A Grapefruit in the World of Park was also a performance that she was doing sort of based on that short story that she wrote. And, um, you know, in my research, because I find the idea of hybridity uh, endlessly fascinating, and I think we all have degrees of hybridity in our individual selves, that she was sort of working with this reconciliation of her east and west parts of her mm. <laughs> self and that she related to the grapefruit because she believed it also to be a hybrid fruit between a lemon and an orange. <laughs> and I think a lot of us thought that as, as young people. And so that became a kind of touchstone fruit, if you will. She's never seemed to be one to shy away from human relations and the question of violence as part of human relations. Uh, and so that comes out in, in this A Grapefruit in a World of Park story. But as as the grapefruit sort of book, as a culmination of a larger collection of these instruction works, she doesn't make these connections so transparent. She gives us an opportunity to really enjoy the process of becoming, mm. to let it become an illustration for us in our own minds. Mm. And, there, and therefore, there's a certain amount of freedom and liberty, you know, that she bestows upon uh, either the viewer, the visitor, or the participant. And so that sort of leads me to that other major innovation in her work, which you've pointed out is very rare in art history, which is to involve the visitor to her exhibition or to encounter the works and to have the opportunity to complete them, to actually be part of the story, to be part of the creative process. I think this is absolutely very important and it places Yoko in a very special category of artists because, of of course, through the years, artists have collaborated. There has been collaborations of uh, different artists through the centuries. And, of course, 20th century of art has been full of interesting and, uh, and incredible collaborations. But the fact that uh, the artist would uh, open up the possibility for a collaboration with the viewer uh, is something quite uh, unique because uh, once that is done, there is no more control of the work. And uh, she accepts that uh, each and everyone can, in fact, take the work into a different kind of direction. Her works are word-based, 
And uh, most of the time you can say that they are simultaneously a description and a definition. And uh, the viewer uh, will read the instruction and he can uh, participate mentally by uh, continuing to uh, think and develop the work in its mind or he can, in fact, uh, create a physical object of the work. But uh, what characterizes also this uh, situation is the ephemerality of the mm -hmm. work. It is always being uh, framed or uh, placed in time. It's never a work that can be seen as an object-based work for eternity. It's always something that is supposed to be uh, reinvented, revisited, and uh, there is always a new chapter being uh, produced uh, within the same instruction of Yoko. So in that sense, uh, I mean, the way I, I like to interpret that is the instructions are a type of score for us to interpret in our own way, depending on the place that it's interpreted in. Um, it can change from one place to another, and then it gives her also the freedom to reinterpret <laughs> her own instruction and Absolutely. then to, to create a, like a remix of it in another way. And so it really does link in with another one of uh, the themes that she works with, which is the idea of the unfinished mm -hmm. and this desire for kind of real uh, liberty from the constraints of her own making. And so she seems to resist that through the very notion of, of impermanence, mm -hmm. which is also very rooted in Buddhism. It really comes to another level when we get to uh, the recent exhibitions that you've been organizing where there is the addition of the institution who is presenting the instructions where she gives these institutions the opportunity to also produce the works, mm. making choices for the objects based mm. on the context that they're in. I mean, it's a huge risk, mm. and it's an amazing leap of faith, you know, to then add another layer mm. to the whole game. Mm. Helmet's Pieces of Sky, for example, uh, uses, in her early iterations, um, soldiers' helmets from World War One, and they're upturned and suspended from the ceiling, and then they have these beautiful pieces of puzzle with image of sky on them. But in other iterations that I've seen for shows that you've been co-organizing and, and instigating, Mexico City, for example, they used a different type of helmet, which mm. was for them more relevant to their historical, social, and cultural context. Mm. And we have done the same here in mm. Montreal. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that extra layer that she she offers and what what uh, types of outcomes <laughs> you've experienced. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's uh, interesting to um, to see also how her work has uh, developed. The instruction works in the beginning, they were very much about questioning the notion of art. And they were often quite philosophical, they were often quite surrealistic and sometimes quite absurd. And then in the last 20 years, we have seen uh, a new kind of development of uh, the instruction works, which uh, makes them often much more socially and politically 
orientated. For example, uh, uh, there are works that uh, open up for a different kinds of creativity. For example, Mummy is Beautiful is a very powerful piece where she invites people to write memories about their mothers. And knowing that everybody has a mother and everybody has different kinds of relationship with their mothers in terms of uh, duration, in terms of good and bad, in terms of uh, love and hate, etc. And in these works, we have often this kind of uh, interesting narratives that are being produced in a collective way. So there are fragments of stories that cohabit in the exhibition. And when you uh, participate, you are concentrated on your story. And when you read the whole work, you will get uh, the palimpest of all these different uh, experiences, which uh, produce a very interesting type of literature. Is it poetry or is it uh, a novel? Is it a theater piece or is it a, a performance simply? Because you have all these kinds of experimental uh, characteristics that come up in this kind of situation in terms of linearity and fragmented uh, linearity, uh, multiplicity of and polyphony of voices that are uh, uh, rooted in similar kinds of society but have different kinds of experiences and are telling different kinds of uh, stories which can be a very painful stories or very joyful uh, experiences. She uh, has been very uh, powerful in uh, her propositions and how to uh, initiate these kind of often very basic uh, instructions to be able to produce a very powerful uh, artistic uh, works and uh, artistic events and situation. And there is a, also a very interesting connection to the support because uh, in the beginning, she would say uh, simply, here is the text and please... Uh, read the text and participate uh, with all your creativity. Now she can also give us the instruction and then also give us uh, certain kind of tools. For example, the participant should write down their reactions uh, to the instruction. And uh, it has also developed uh, through different kinds of technology. Because uh, with Mummy is Beautiful, she uh, used or proposed to use the postage as a, as yeah, a, post-it as a, notes, yeah, as as a as a support for right. the for the small notes or even for longer texts. And then now, uh, recently, she uh, created the work Arising, yeah. where she used, in fact, the internet. Right how internet became an active element in her uh, development of the instruction work. And it's interesting to see how she has really uh, been able to develop that form, which is the instruction form, 
not only to be fixed in a certain kind of uh, letter, sentence, text-based uh, situation, but also being able to uh, be used within other kinds of uh, medias like uh, uh, the internet. So in her work arising, she calls out to women to um, tell us about their experience, mostly bad experience with men. So women are invited to uh, take photos of their eyes and write down these stories of uh, violence uh, which they have had with uh, their partners and with men in general. Yeah, just for being women, you know. Just because yeah. they are yeah. women. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, goes into a, a very important topic that she's been uh, uh, dealing with for a long time. And it is a part of her peace project is, in fact, violence against women, which we, we can find in all societies in different kinds of scales all around the world. And she's been really preoccupied She's been preoccupied with uh, the condition of women. You know, you really see that even in her early work, the condition of women, the body, peace and violence definitely integrated with, with these concerns. She gets the use of the Internet and Facebook and Twitter, which she's very active on, but arising is definitely harnessed as a tool for this instruction work Uh, so that we can get a really significant accumulation of these stories. Mm. And then the space that's presenting the piece, they, they print them out and they, you know, you put them on the walls. And my own experience has been, I can maybe read five, maybe in a row before I really have to stop because mm. I'm, my eyes are just filled with tears. Mm. And then I came to, you know, this other reading level where I was thinking about the cathartic experience for the women to accept Yoko's instruction to write it down and how that may have been a very cleansing uh, experience for them and then for it to be shared and then for other people to be inspired to perhaps write it down, to share it, maybe a story that they've never told anybody and then to have a kind of anonymous yet very public way to do it. There's so many levels of this very simple project, which um, uh, ha, you know has has endless sort of ways that you can turn it around and never exhaust it. Mm -hmm. I find, which is something else that I I've grappled with about her work, which is it seems very simple and unpretentious, and it is so rich, <laughs> mm. so rich and 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 complex, probably more so than. You know, it can't really be oversimplified because as soon as you get involved, <laughs> you're kind of like you're going down that rabbit hole. Mm, yeah. um, it's one of the, you know, the great enigmatic qualities of her work. Mm. But yes, she's always managed to stay current with every tool that mm. comes up. She she makes it work as a, as a medium. And you think about her billboard works, for example, you know, her just ability to work with mass media mm to get messages out, she's um, all, still doing that, I, mm. if I understand. She will still do, you know, have you seen the horizon lately mm. on giant billboards mm. in, in cities around the world? Mm. And she can have a presence in a place without actually having to be there. Mm -hmm. That is something she seems to have mastered as well. Mm. 
I think it's uh, never enough repeated uh, her feministic uh, role in the contemporary art. And I think that is something that comes from far away, like her education. It uh, probably has something to do with the strong uh, position of her mother and uh, how her mother also uh, made it possible for her to uh, have a certain kind of uh, intellectual and social space in a very uh, male-dominated society, which was Japan at the time. And it is interesting that when we look at photographs from uh, performances and concerts in Japan in the 50s, it's very interesting to see that there are always on the stage something like 40 men and one woman. It's Yoko Ono. And when she comes into the New York art world uh, and she was doing these events at her loft together with uh, Lamonte Young, she had, in fact, uh, important problems to be visible huh? because the, the, the guys, these, her, her male uh, artist colleagues and friends, uh, they were so dominating and they were so used to the fact that it was the man who was going to dominate the art scene. So from the beginning, she's been in this kind of uh, struggle. She's been aware of the, of the difficulties of not only colored uh, women, but uh, women in general. Women uh, have not been equal to men in, in the history for, for, for mm -hmm. a very, very, very long time. And uh, she has been a very important uh, actor in trying to find the more uh, balance between the, the men and, uh, and women in society. And so in the beginning, it was uh, uh, very much making her own space in the male-dominated uh, artistic uh, art scenes. But then it has it turned quite uh, soon also uh, to becoming an advocate for women in general. And these works that refers to the mother or refers to the violence that women have experienced is a very important uh, uh, voice in the uh, social, uh, political uh, context of uh, equality between men and women. I find it endlessly inspiring that uh, she should have the courage to do what she wanted to do and to make a place for her work in that particular circle of men in, in the 60s. It's true, you see these photographs of her performing and she's often among men in suits and, you know, and she's just there and she's not sort of like a hanger-on. She works at being considered, and I think she was fairly successful in being considered as a peer, as being a fellow artist. What she went through in that um, is uh, perhaps not as clearly documented, but you cannot, it is inescapable, it is impossible to deny that there was a lot of friction and a lot of difficulty that she faced in uh inserting her there and affirming her space and her place there as an equal artist. And I think it uh, shows very well when she meets uh, John Lennon, in fact, because uh, then she enters a very masculine... Uh, Muscular, masculine, yeah. yeah, macho kind of rock and roll world. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And uh, there was... Uh, a clear hierarchy between men and women in that mm -hmm. uh, rock and roll uh, world. 
and she was able to uh, impose her uh, personality and make her space because of her education, because of her knowledge and because of her strength as a human being, but also as, a, as an artist. So when uh, she met uh, John Lennon, who was uh, the public figure and, uh, and probably the one of the most uh, important uh, pop icons mm -hmm. at the time, mm -hmm. uh, she impressed him also by her own work. And uh, he, as an artist, understood that uh, this was something which was uh, incredibly original and, and interesting to be a part of. There, I'd like to maybe um, close our conversation with this one enduring idea that they both shared, that I think they saw it in each other, they saw it in each other's work and their you know, general philosophies, which is the idea of hope. Hmm. Both he and uh, Yoko have described their first meeting and how it was around uh, ceiling painting, hmm. uh, the work where you climb a ladder, where there has to be this risk involved by climbing a ladder and then looking up to see this painting hanging from the ceiling and taking a magnifying glass and holding it up and discovering the word yes, mm. and how that that was a really pivotal moment because it was such a positive thing. Um, and that when they started making art together, uh, a real motor for their collaborations mm. was this idea of hope and individual agency, which has collective power. And so that if we all believe that we can put our differences aside I think, as they say, if a man from Liverpool and a woman from Tokyo can put their own differences mm -hmm. aside in order to come together through love, mm -hmm. then we all can. We all can overcome our differences. And so this idea of, of hope and positivity in light of, you know, all the darkness, which was, you know, the context in which they found themselves when they were first making art together, uh, has, you know, incredible legs when we find ourselves 50 years later. Mm -hmm and in a quite a dark period again. And she never wavers from that in her work. There's there's always that, you know, sort of other projects like um, Imagine Peace Tower. Mm. Even though she's still not shied away, I think she's even become even more radical mm. in some of her later works, which, which do not, she does not flinch from showing mm. violence and that mm. violence exists and that it's right outside our doors. But then she still manages to hold on to hope. You know, if we want it enough, mm. it can be. Mm. Perhaps as a way to close, you could share with me your favorite instruction work. I mean, it may change from time to time, but do you have one right now? Yeah, I think that there are two types of works which are very different, which are the ones that are quite abstract. For example, the work where she says, she writes, uh, look at the sun until it becomes a square. And it's a very a meditative piece. It's a wonderful absurdity. And then, on the other hand, you have these more direct works, like uh, the mending piece, where uh, people are invited to uh, repair uh, these uh, dishes and glasses that have been uh, broken. And this piece, of course, refers to the nuclear catastrophe of the Second World War in Hiroshima, in Japan. But it is also a part of her uh, ongoing hope for a better future. And uh, this work is all about healing. 
And uh, in her work, I think it's important to say that uh, it's not only about the hope as such. It is always uh, accompanied by a uh, instruction and uh, desire for healing. Because the healing process will uh, bring us somewhere else. Uh, I think her um, invitation to healing is important because it invites the notion of action. And I think that uh, and the vision of, of Yoko for art, but also for the world in general, it is, of course, related to the fact that we need to react. We uh, need to be conscient about certain things and we need to react to certain things. And uh, the whole uh, peace movement that she was uh, initiating and taking a very active part in was all about action, about protesting certain kinds of uh, reality. So it is, for me, more efficient and more uh, uh, direct uh, than just hoping for a better world. Mm -hmm. We have to want it, but we have to do something as well. And it ties in very clearly to the actions that she and, and John took on in their artistic projects, like the War is Over Peace campaign, mm. um, the bed-ins uh, in Montreal and Amsterdam. And these were very highly mediatized and publicized projects, which were really meant to you know, incite us mm. um, to also can be an artistic gesture, but that it is an active and participative uh, role, you know, that they're, you know, getting us to take. It's like, don't focus on us doing it, it's about you doing yeah. it, yeah. which is like a real link with her. Absolutely. And and when she uh, uh, meets uh, John Lennon and collaborates with John Lennon, she, of course, understands that uh, Lennon is a real social uh, actor. And it is, in fact, uh, through his uh, social uh, position that uh, uh, they would be able to uh, get their, um, the message to a big audience. And I think that uh, they were quite complementary in that situation. She is uh, maybe the, the one who is formulating the wish, but uh, he is definitely... Uh, the locomotive uh, to bring these uh, wishes uh, to the world. I guess that's why they make such an incredible duo, couple, artist collaboration that resonates with us today. Uh, two artists that put their egos aside so that they could, you know, bring this message out beyond their own, you know, even celebrity, while at the same time you know, acknowledging that it's the celebrity that's going to get the word out there. Gunnar Kavaran, thank you so much for sharing your insights with the Aura. It has been a pleasure to work with you. I consider you a great mentor and, uh, and a friend. And um, I look forward to, who knows, collaborating again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Aura. 
This podcast was conceived by the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art and produced and recorded at the Phi Center in Montreal.